electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, assessing the aftermath. From the midterm surprise to Meta's layoffs and Disney's Dow disaster, the company debating now what all of that means to your money. Liz Young, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, all here, along with Brian Belsky right here on set, Vimo's chief investment strategist. Let's check stocks. It's just past 12 noon in the east. See what we're doing today. We're down, as you see, about 260-ish, between 250, 260 on the Dow, 32.9. We're down three quarters of 1% on the S&P, down a little more than 1% on the NASDAQ, and we're at 411 the 10-year note yield. So we got no red wave as expected. You got Musk selling 4 million Tesla shares. We've talked about that stock, Joe, at critical levels. You got ARK at a new 52-week low. You got Bitcoin at the lowest level in two years. And all of that, uh, we pay attention to the CPI, which is looming tomorrow. Does the calendar say 2023 yet? Because I can't wait for 2022 to be over, because what can go wrong will go wrong. You had a gridlock rally yesterday. That gets met by this, this negative market sentiment surrounding what's going on in crypto. It's bleeding into the market again today. Oh, you You're think s- that's what this is, oh, this oh, is oh, about? Without question. Without question. This, this is, quote unquote, liquidity concerns. Do I think it's you know, a, a risk to financial market stability? No, but I do think that people are looking at what's going on right now in crypto. They're questioning whether the liquidity ultimately is going to be there. Who's the last player in this game of musical chairs of bailing out one crypto player to the next? And they're raising some cash levels. And that's just where we are in 2022, unfortunately. And again, I go back to the mega caps. Where are the mega caps today? Mega caps are down. Apple's down below 137 at this point. Amazon's down. Alphabet's down. Microsoft's down. That's going to impact the overall index. Been watching Tesla, as I mentioned, um, again, with some calls like Mark Newton made yesterday that the stock could go down maybe just north of 100 bucks to like 109. Liz, how do you see it? Um, is this about crypto? Is this about not as big of a midterm um, win, if you want to if you want to call it that, as was expected or, or what? Well, first of all, the expectation is usually that after a midterm election, I know Joe will tell you this, after a midterm election, the market usually size relief and find some upside. I'm afraid to say this with Belsky looking right at me, but (laughs) the rally that we've seen up until this point hasn't really made a lot of sense. And what I mean by that is the optimism that I think the market had, whether it was because of some kind of pending Fed pivot, which isn't coming, because of economic strength that I think is waning. Now we're in the face of not only a crypto disaster, but announcements that just continue to pile on to one another about layoffs from tech companies, that eventually is going to bleed into the labor market in the actual numbers. So we're just starting to get these hints of earnings contractions and economic contractions that I think the market has to really right-size itself before we can get to the other side. So a little pullback here, 
I think is rational. Uh, I don't know that it's going to be the big one. I do still expect one big flush before we are done with this bear market. All right. So we have like an electric fence <laughs> around you guys for the bears. Batman the, I mean, the bulls. Over there. The, the bulls are in, in an electric fence, so they can't get close to you. You can say whatever you want. Don't worry. <laughs> as long as we're not in the penalty box. <laughs> not yet. Well, not yet. I mean, so you, you do have, you know, I, I guess some... You know, I, I don't know if concerns is too strong of a word. I mean, it's not strong that strong about Bitcoin and the crypto fallout um, in other asset classes or, you know, where the roaches are running all over the place. Right. That we're going to soon take a look at the midterm fallout. Um, you've got yields, arc. What, what do we think is going on here in the market? I think it's a whole lot of that, uh, everything. And you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we talked about with respect to the market did a really good job taking out the ARC stocks, taking out the memes, taking out the SPACs, and now it's still going one more time at crypto. And I do agree with Joe. I think it is a liquidity issue. And you take a look at the biggest stocks, the ones that are taking on the most water. But those are also long duration assets, too. So the longer duration assets still have a lot of risk to them. And as the market over the next few years, and we've been using this term normalizes, where interest rates normalize, earnings growth normalizes, um, and oh, by the way, the balance sheet normalizes as well. These longer term duration assets are still going to be under pressure. So it doesn't mean that we're not bullish. It just means that I think we have to be a little bit more tempered in how we're looking at the next six months. Now, are you looking in the mirror when you're saying that or who's we? I, I, I listen, I have a great team. So I always say we I don't like to say I, but we I like so. it better when you say I. So I think this. You want to do a tag team? Right now? <laughs> we do, we do a tag team. So Jim and I think this. No, I think this. Um, I, there's so much bearishness out there. I, I had a meeting with a very big account yesterday, and they basically said, yeah, we agree that we're, everyone's bearish. There, I think there's this pent-up demand for any kind of good news, Scott. And we are, well, I think that's the, true, for sure. I think, the market, I think the market is a little skittish heading into tomorrow as well, because fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Once, twice, three times, lady. Yep. If this thing comes in hot tomorrow... Look out. Well, let me tell you something. I mean, there there is there's a note from a trading desk making the rounds that suggest a, you know, a hotter than expected report tomorrow could mean a really big decline tomorrow in stocks. Well, everyone's been looking at your garden variety, a one or two percent decline either. Right. So everyone's been looking for this blessed capitulation. Right. Maybe that's your capitulation. If you see a really hot CPI tomorrow, then that would actually be good news. Let's wash the deck. Let's have the I Fed. I don't know. Do you think that'd be good news? Because that that then brings a much larger than expected rate hike in December into play. Well, I think right? the Fed needs to be clear and just come out and say, we're going to want to 5 percent. Let's go to 5 percent. Let's get this thing done and then move on from here and then start the process of normalizing. And I think that's what they've been trying to do. But they need to be a little bit more forceful in terms of this path to normalization. You know, Joe made the point on the, the mega caps and, you know, as someone suggests to me via email, just sort of reiterating the notion that tech and crypto are, in their words, tied at the hip. Right. You can't get any traction in. I mean, the, the Nasdaq and, and Bitcoin were pretty tightly correlated for a good period of time. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, we also have to acknowledge that tech has come down. We have further to go. I'm not uh, I'm not saying that you're wrong about crypto being a factor here. But tech, you know, the top five concentration in the S&P 500 has come down from, I think, 23 percent to 20 percent, probably has further to go. 
but we're already making some inroads into that. And frankly, the last few weeks, we've seen that this market can rally even as the FANG stocks don't. Um, so that sort of kind of myth has been put to bed that, that we can't rally without those stocks. I do think, though, that the motive force here in this market is tomorrow. Um, you know, the elections are done. OK, it wasn't as red. Big deal. Um, crypto, I'm not I'm not taking away from what you're saying, but we've got to acknowledge that at least as we look at Bitcoin, it was already down 70 percent, you know, from its high. So it has an effect. Yes. But I think the big effect is, look, this market wants to know where the peak Fed funds rate is, period. Last week, we adjusted to the peak Fed funds rate is not 4.60, it's 5.0%. If you get a hot inflation number, that peak Fed fund rate goes up and the markets adjust down again. I don't know what the CPI is going to be. I am going to say something that I feel very strongly, is that you look at goods inflation, actually you look at average hourly earnings, it's well below what the CPI is stating. I don't care whether it's commodities, I don't care whether it's freight costs, I don't care if it's used cars, rents. Things are coming down. The CPI is not picking it up. That's a debate for another day because the Fed is focused on the CPI, but I don't think the CPI is the right indicator to use. Do, do you think um, that we are appreciating enough the risk that surrounds CPI tomorrow being hotter again, again? Uh, and what that means, right? We've done four 75 basis point hikes in a row. We are starting to condition ourselves to say, okay, the largest are over. Now it's time to think about the smaller, the 50s, the 25s, the stopping and sitting and looking around. That could all be thrown into question tomorrow, right? Right. I think we also, as participants of the market, have underappreciated what the Fed has been telling us over and over and over again. Why did we anticipate some kind of pivot? Why did we anticipate a downshift really at all yet? And if it does come in hotter, that hope disappears. So what I think Jerome Powell has been very clear about is that 75 basis points is an unusually large hike. And they, I don't think they want to continue at that clip. But 50 basis points is still pretty big after more than a decade of zero. So. Just because even if they did move down to 50, that's still a big jump. And that is still something that I don't think the market has entirely digested after this rally. But I think the bigger question, I would, I would disagree a little bit with Jim's point about the peak rate being the most important. I think it's the path that we get there that's most important. And the statement that Jerome Powell made in the last meeting about I'd rather go too far and try to fix it afterwards than not go far enough. So I think it's the path. I think it's the speed. And I think it's how we get there and what happens in the meantime to the economy. And I do expect it to start cracking quite a bit. You got something you it's want perspective, to say? though, too. Be, well, it's perspective because since 1954, the average 10-year Treasury is 5.6 percent. Since 2009, it's 2.3 percent. We've reared an entire generation of investors that all they know is zero interest rates. So higher, anything higher than zero is going to be higher, and that's actually going to be really good for the market to get there. That we don't need those low, super low interest rates. So all of what's happening from a longer-term perspective is really positive. But because we're so reactive and looking at just the near, near past, we don't. We're missing that perspective of things. What if the report is softer? I mean, I, like, mm. I mean, I guess there's a reason why we're not dancing with that, which is that for the last 21 months, I think it's been, we've had one CPI report. It was August that came in better than expectations. But what if? I mean, the expectations headline tomorrow, 8.2. What if you get a 7.9%? I'll tell you, I think this market will rip on that. I, I think we're making this more complicated than it needs to be. Two-year Treasury, is it 5% or 4.5%? That's going to tell you where the market's going. I mean, that, that, that's the leading indicator. Uh, mega cap technology 
Is it going to stop going down? Is the tax selling, if Bitcoin, well, selling if, it to If Bitcoin continues to go down? Technology's going down. Okay. And if you're looking for a capitulation, maybe the capitulation happens in the crypto market. Does the equity market decouple from that? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, a guy like, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm listening to you. You know I respect you, but I just don't buy into it. Not, buy into not what? The idea yeah, that, crypto, what? that crypto is leading this market down. It's not that it's not that I think, oh, you're crazy. Get out of here. I just don't think it's that big of an effect. And I think guys like me and you all know me. You think I'm invested in crypto? Come on. Um, no, you know, there's a lot of guys like there's a lot of guys like me who are looking it at it and saying sent- does it's it about shake time. sentiment. I don't think so. You don't think it I shakes think it market sentiment? Okay, well, you know, it's in the middle of the bears and don't in tell the middle me of the day yesterday. The I don't even know how to spell crypto. Okay, <laughs> in the middle of the day yesterday, when the report came out, what yeah, did the market do? I, I, it went down, but it went down one percent. We can't help ourselves though. We're such what, in a momentum I mean, no one's market. suggesting that the market. What did you need it to go down? Ten percent to suggest that there was some oh, sort 1% of percent is no big deal. But it's sentiment. Joe's point is is well made, isn't it? I mean, it's a question of degree. It is well made. Uh, it is well made. I just you still don't even know what the full fallout is at this point, do you? Maybe you do. I, I know. I, I do mean, you? Well, but there was a tell this summer, right, when all of those crypto hedge funds went under. And you know what didn't happen? J.P. Morgan didn't put out a press release. Oh, guys, guess what? We got a big hole on our balance sheet that nobody knew about. I mean, that's actually important. What's decoupled is crypto from the mainstream financial world. I hope that doesn't change. Holy well, moly. I, here, I think actually the, the thing that happened yesterday, it's this threat of contagion. How much is everything interconnected? And just the headline that basically a, a company had to be saved. Nobody wants to hear a company had to be saved at the same time as we're hearing a bunch of other companies are doing layoffs. That starts to be something where then you look at it from an economic standpoint and think, this can't be good, right? Just, these aren't these aren't a collection of headlines you hear in good times. Yeah, not also not just a company, like one of the companies. Right, right. That adds to yeah. what we're talking about. But the other big yeah. story today that I want to get to um, right now: Dow's down three ten, and we'll continue to watch that. Obviously, um, led in many respects today by Disney. Uh, worst day in two and a half years. So I'm coming back to you, uh, Jimmy. The loss was much larger than expected on direct to consumer. And I guess the question I have for you as you own the stock, are you too leveraged to direct to consumer? I was thinking about that between that and Paramount, Paramount and that. It's like I understand taking a bet on that business, but that's a big bet if you put those two together. Yeah. I mean, the answer to your question is, I'm levered to it. Do I think I'm over-levered? I don't think so. It's, it's a bet. There's no question about it. Um, I, I think it's important, though, to say what's going on in this business, right? Investments are being made. There are negative cash flows in the business. And let's face it, this is not a year when capital costs are going up that anybody wants to talk about investments that will pay off in the future. It doesn't matter whether it's streaming or you know, software as a service, you name it. Anything that has a future payoff, uh, this, this market is just not interested in because capital is not free anymore. Okay, I get that. I get that. Jim, I, I mean, you lose, you, you lose a billion and a half. The estimate was for a, a billion. Yeah, okay, but also let's, they pointed out that that's going to improve by 200 million in the next quarter, and it's going to steadily improve through fiscal 23. Assuming that the economy doesn't take a more significant downturn. Um, assuming not that, but assuming that if it does take a significant downturn, that people aren't going to cut off their, you know, whether it's Netflix, Paramount Plus, or Disney Plus, that those are going to be things that they stay at home and watch. I I mean, time will tell, but one thing we've got to say is these companies have been growing the subscriber base rapidly and consistently, and when you get past the next 12 months, 
the payoffs for these companies are substantial. The problem is, again, this is not a market that wants to look 12 months out. You're also making less than, um, look, Barry Diller, I thought, you know, was pretty provocative the other morning on Squawk, where he kind of suggested that the game's over, that Netflix won and everybody else is playing for second place at this point. You look at similar or certain metrics like ARPU, average revenue per user, uh, they're lower than Netflix's and they're also declining. Do you pay attention to that? Of course I do. Of course I do. Well, there's reasonable explanations of this. First off, I don't think this is a winner takes all. I just don't. I mean, what's the number? I'm trying to look it up while looking at you at the same time. 134 million subscribers? Somebody tell me where Disney Plus is right now. It's a big number, all right? And it continues to grow. It's what 160. Yeah. Okay. 164. Well, that's, I think you're including uh, a hot star in there, too. But nonetheless, they added 9 million Disney Plus subscribers in the quarter. I mean, these are these are big numbers. You're going to you're gonna tell me those are table scraps? I'm not going to say so. Hang on, Joe, one sec, because I want to come back to you on ARPU. There's a reason, right? In order to grow a business, you have to have these partnerships that start off low, you know, whether it's with a telecom provider or whomever. Paramount has it with Walmart. They start off low. That skews the ARPU down. But as those customers then become paying customers, which history has shown happens, the ARPU goes up. So you sold Disney before the quarter, before the print. I did. Recently. I did. Um, and I grew very impatient with it, and it's something that I think in this market right now, you have to be a little bit, my strategy is to be a little bit more active, you know that, uh, and, and I think that there are other opportunities. I said yesterday, I'm finding those opportunities in the material space where you're short on supply, um, so I'm very happy to move out of Disney, but I think what's important from the risk management perspective, Jimmy, mm-hmm. and I think, I think there are viewers that are in this position. They own Paramount, they own Disney. If I said to you, Jimmy, you have to cut one, which would you cut? Where is the opportunity for a fundamental recovery better present itself? I, I never like to punt on the question, but you know from my answer that it's just not where I am. You know from my portfolio, I've got both of them, and I do see differences in them, right? Um, Probably so, they're both kind of betting on the same future. Yes, but you know what's also similar is that they both have legacy businesses that are funding this growth right now. This is not something where either company has to come back to the markets and say, I need to do a big equity offering because I don't have enough money to pursue my business plan. But to Scott's point, then, doesn't it just require the macro environment to get better? I, I legitimately don't know, and I, with respect, say you don't know. If the macro, no, environment, know. If the macro environment goes south and people don't have jobs, do they stay at home and watch Paramount Plus and Disney Plus? I mean, I think there's a reasonable case to be made that they do. I cannot sit here and say I know that that's the case. I think it's reasonable. So to what say do we want to do. do about Meta, which is leading the S&P today? As we said, Disney is a big decliner for the Dow with the announcement of, you know, 13 percent. The first layoffs, by the way, in that company's history. Brad Gerstner, of course, wrote the letter urging them to tighten their belt to become leaner and more fit, um, calls it an important first step. He tweeted that out. And also um, gave me a message suggesting that this is what he said. I'm going to directly quote. Uh, this is this is from Gerstner to me that you're looking at the tweet. Uh, we think the tide is turning and founders are realizing this is not a moment, but a permanent regime change in how they need to think and build their companies. So do you want to react? It's hard for you to react yeah, directly. I, to, I do. To I Meta. actually do want to say something, though. So a lot of these companies, I think the, the narrative has shifted. And as investors, the feeling about it has shifted and it's moved from what can the stock do going forward to now what is the company doing to protect margins? So when there's news that the company is doing something to protect margins instead of spend willy-nilly on things into an environment like this that is rewarded positively 
in the share price. Well, I, uh, this is a little much, I think, but still, I think that it's it's changed and shareholders want some sort of message that says, OK, we get it. We're doing what we can to control costs and protect margins. Because, I mean, Joe, let, let's just remember we're only in a period of are we even a full two weeks from when Meta reported? Maybe we're, we're just about that time. Time just flies by. But on the earnings report, remember Gerstner had put his letter out right at that time. And I think the prevailing thought was that Zuckerberg was basically telling investors, I'm going to do my thing. So at I don't the, really care what yeah. you say. I'm so, going to do my thing. I control the vote. I know what I'm doing. Everybody else get out of the way. Now, this is in part a nod that he's listening to some shareholders, influential and otherwise, but certainly the Brad Gerstners of the world mm-hmm. are important to that company. Well, certainly at the time, my response was that I was hopeful that Mark Zuckerberg would listen to what Brad was trying to identify as opportunities for the company. But I also, ahead of the earnings report and after the earnings report, was, inc- <clears throat> was incredibly, uh, incredibly negative surrounding the future of what this company could be. Now, with all that being said, what I will tell you is that what I am seeing for the very first time in this company is if you study momentum, and it's a factor in the market, Jimmy, it's a factor in the market. <laughs> for the very first time in two years, you have a little bit of a bright green for momentum. So the stock right now is at 103. I could tell you that momentum points this stock more towards 120 to 125. Then it does a return back down to 88 or 90. So before we move on, your, your view right now of growth versus value when some, uh, a good number of people are now trying to line up and suggest that this is value's real moment, not just a two steps forward, one step back moment, but a real moment where mega cap growth takes a backseat that all of these other stocks are going to do much better in the, in the months, if not years ahead than these. You say what? I say the interest rate backdrop supports value. I say that from a valuation perspective, it supports value. I think from an earnings perspective, it supports value. But never in my 33-year career have I seen cash flow, balance sheet strength, and earnings discernibility in the small mid-cap space, which is typically more value-oriented as well. All three of those have underperformed dramatically. I'm not going to buy it just because they've underperformed. But I don't think it's as binary, Scott, that you need to be in growth or value. I think you have to kind of own both a little bit. So Garpy, if you're going to own growth, own Garpy growth. Well, are, are mega-caps growth at a reasonable price? Or are, they, are they too expensive depends still? About, that's, that's where the debate is, though. Well, that okay, they, they've so, come down in, in multiple, but they're still too expensive so here's a, relative to the market. Let's throw Facebook or Meta into the, into the realm. I sold all of my Facebook in December of 2018 because I didn't like the direction of, of where the company was going in terms of its product. This company still needs to be held accountable for what's happened in the last three or four years in terms of performance. This is heading in the right direction. And typically, that's what value stocks do when you see this type of first move now, whether or not Facebook or is a is a value stock, I think it's too early. I think I think Microsoft and Apple can be more of a Garpy value stock. But I think the true value in the market, Scott, are going to be financials, healthcare, parts of energy, parts of industrials, and maybe some parts of tech. But I think from a sector basis, that's where you're going to but get are your Apple value. Apple and Microsoft too expensive or not? 
Uh, relative to history, yes, but in terms of the relative of the sector, no. Well, relative to where we, well, relative to where we are in, in in the world, I mean, what's going on? Are they too expensive? Well, it depends upon what you want to pay for. If you want to pay for stable growth, um, Apple and Microsoft are amongst the most stable growers in the marketplace. So, if you're going to have, you have a portfolio of stocks, Scott. If you want to have uh, stable growth, you will pay a little bit higher multiple. Remember, the multiple is down 7.4 points. The average multiple contraction in a bear market is 6.4 points. So the market's done its job. So whether or not Apple and Microsoft are going to continue to see that depletion of the multiple, I think it's a moot point. What you're paying for is the stability of earnings. So I don't mind paying a little bit more for Apple and Microsoft just because of the earnings stability. No, I know. But my issue is if the if the market multiple comes in even more, is Microsoft at 24 or Apple at 26 too egregious to pay? I don't think so, especially if, if you're going to right-size the rest of your technology moves and then uh, technology positions. And lastly, people have to remember that coming out of a bear market trough, multiples go up. Multiples go up historically. They've done so since the, la- since the last 11 bear markets. And so we can have a little bit higher market multiple and still have lower multiple stocks in your entire portfolio to kind of balance out right. ha- owning Apple and Microsoft. All right, we'll leave it there. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, that's Brian Belsky uh, from BMO joining us right here on set. We talked about Bitcoin hitting new lows. Cryptos continue to feel the fallout from Binance's plan to bail out FTX. We're following that money. We do have some updates, the very latest coming up next. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back on the half. The crypto world still digesting the fallout from FTX. Our Kate Rooney joins us from San Francisco with the very latest. Kate, what do we know today? Hey, Scott, that's right. Well, crypto investors I'm talking to are still really rattled by this outcome. Binance's takeover of FTX is still up in the air. And there's some reports today that the deal may not go through, although a Binance spokesperson just responded saying that they are still in the early phases of due diligence. And while it may be a quick way to shore up customer funds, some other high-profile investors will likely be wiped out in the process. The crypto exchange had raised money back in January at a $32 billion valuation from some of the biggest venture capital names out there. You had SoftBank, Sequoia, Toma Bravo, T- 
Tiger Global, among a lot of other big names. I've been on the phone with some of the VC investors in FTX over the last couple of days who tell me they are expecting their stakes in FTX to be essentially worthless. They're planning to write it off as a loss. I'm told Binance will likely be buying FTX for what they said was pennies on the dollar. Sources also told me Bankman Freed was, quote, scrambling to raise money from venture capitalists and potential backers before he ended up going to Binance really hat in hand. They also brought up potential legal issues for Bankman Freed. Some investors I spoke to say they feel duped by the undisclosed ties between Bankman Freed's trading firm Alameda and his FTX exchange. All of this could also raise some red flags for global regulators. We've reached out to the SEC and CFTC to see if it's something they're investigating. No comment uh, so far from those two. It's unclear, Scott, what happens to FTX's celebrity endorsements either. It brought up, uh, excuse me, bought the naming rights to FTX Arena in Miami. It courted some of the biggest brand ambassadors out there. Steph Curry, Shaq, Naomi Osaka, Tom Brady and Giselle were both spokespeople and investors. All of this is spooking crypto markets. You've seen Bitcoin really taking a hit. Shares of Robinhood down about 20 percent yesterday, still down today. Coinbase also getting hit despite saying it had no material exposure to FTX. And we're seeing more caution in crypto markets as a result of all this. Fundstrat told clients to, quote, raise cash in the event of additional drawdowns across other major crypto assets and said, based on the number of unknown skeletons that could still be hiding, they say it's prudent to proceed with caution. Back to you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, As always, that's Kate Rooney with the latest there as we continue to follow this developing story. The biggest question, Joe, is the one that we uh, asked at the outset. Is there is there risk outside of the asset class itself? That's sort of the great unknown through, you know, leverage, sentiment. I go back to sentiment. Well, sentiment's one thing. Leverage is a whole correct, whole nother ballgame. So leverage has an impact on financial market stability. I'm not sure that we're in that precarious position right now. But sentiment, with, without a question, will have a negative impact on risk assets. And you ask yourself the question, number one, how can we foolishly allow ourselves to be back in this position once again, where the lack of oversight, the lack of regulation is putting us in this situation where we are today, where we have to even have the conversation about potential contagion? Why is there no regulation in the crypto market. Where is the legislation for that? Who is the buyer of last resort on a bailout? You're playing a game of musical chairs. Crypto players bailing out Bankman other crypto Freed players. was the buyer no, of last resort. There needs to be there needs to be there needs to be a clearinghouse. Well, there I know what they to be I know what there needs to be, banks. but but that's what it was. Okay. Well, then that's where we are. And that's why we're sitting here having this conversation. And that's why I'm saying with such a high degree of confidence that sentiment gets shaken by something like this. Maybe financial market stability doesn't, Jimmy, but sentiment gets shaken. How could we be foolish enough to allow this happen again? I never want to get mad at my friend, Joe, but you said something that actually enrages me. Okay. Like, I can go in the back alley and roll dice. I can do that. Okay. Anybody can do that. If there was ever a market where caveat emptor applied, this was it. I mean, this was all about greed. 
It was all about greed. There was no way to value these things. Anybody, and I, I mean, I'm looking at the two of you, you can easily tell me the utility of blockchain. Why is he upset at me? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out why you're upset at me. We're saying just, the same thing. But how are you going to regulate human emotion of greed? It's going to happen every 10, 15 years. No, 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 no. wait a second. Whether it's, how are you going to regulate e-toys stock or this stuff? Take the human emotion out of it. That's you're, what got you're, this. This Bitcoin should never have been 68,000. It shouldn't have been 6,800. There's no way to value this thing. There, look, I can find the utility of it. You can find the utility of it. I cannot value these things. That's why I stayed away. I don't think the argument is about what's the use case, though, necessarily. I, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but the regulation that you might be suggesting. So there was a liquidity problem yesterday, which is why a company needed to be saved. So if there were regulation, it would, what, force some level of reserves, so to speak, like we have in the banking industry? You would have a clearinghouse. You would have traditional traditional banks involved. You wouldn't have an individual player who is funding uh, short-term costs with longer-term assets. That's the recipe for a disaster. That's exactly what's happening. And it allowed Bankman Freed to basically get squeezed by CZ. That's what happened. He got squeezed. All right, let's do this. Let's move. Let's um, let's go to Seema Modi, who has the headlines for us. Hi, Seema. Pivot here, Scott. Uh, here's a CNBC News update at this hour. Midterms in focus. We begin with Republicans holding on to a key Senate seat in the Midwest. NBC News can now project that Ron Johnson will win re-election in Wisconsin. The incumbent senator was able to defeat the Democratic challenger, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, in a tight race. Johnson had declared victory in a release earlier this morning and said there was no mathematical path for Barnes to beat him. It will now come down to a tight race in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia to determine Senate control. A high-profile Democrat in New York has just conceded his House race. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of his party's campaign committee, calling his opponent this morning to concede. That's according to a spokesperson. Maloney is the first head of the House Democrats' campaign arm to lose his own seat since 1980. And a number of ballot measures passing states across the country. NBC can project that California has voted to allow online sports betting, but not in-person sports betting. And in Connecticut and Michigan, voters there supported proposals to expand early voting and access. Halftime Report. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Is back after this. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's bring in another market voice, Bill Baruch. He's the founder of Blue Line Capital. He's with us today. Welcome. It's good to have you here from Chicago. By the way, win results, they are on deck, which is why Contessa Brewer is sitting with us as well. Those are going to break during overtime, so I, I will see you then. But what should we expect for a stock that's been volatile? You've been with us uh, you know, numerous times of late talking about what's been going on in casinos. It almost seems like a last gasp because the push and pull about this zero COVID infection policy is really what could propel these shares higher. You've got wind shares off about 20% year to date. Macau is the big headwind for this company. And so 
Who knows what happens there? It's been hard to predict. And I don't think the companies themselves have any more clarity than how, I do about it. How could they? Right. It. There right. is no clarity. That's part of the problem. If you're an investor, I mean, Jim holds a stock and we'll talk to him in a second. But, you know, in, in, investors try to make these decisions and, and it's so opaque. You don't you don't know what's going to happen it's and when, if at all. It yeah, is a gamble. A gamble. Okay, but well okay, said. But here's the here's the other thing that I want to point out. Boston, Encore Boston Harbor, is now out earning either of the two properties in Macau right now. Wow. That is an unbelievable situation. And they're firing on all cylinders. Las Vegas as a whole just set a new quarterly record. Uh, and as commercial casinos in the United States just set a new quarterly record for the third quarter, beating only the second quarter of 2022. Recession? What recession? There is no indication, except at the very lowest, least profitable margins, that there is any impact from rising inflation or a looming recession. They just are not seeing it. And what you're seeing is Las Vegas. And, and remember, the customers for Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas are, are big spenders. They're the ultra-high net worth individuals who are coming in, and they are spending. So what do I expect to see? I expect to see that Las Vegas and Boston are subsidizing Macau. Mm. Can that continue? That, that's the question. And is it enough if you're, if you're only subsidizing it, but... It still doesn't. It's not a great position to be in, even if they're subsidizing it. It's such an important market of China. It, it right? So that tempers is. the story. Yeah. Somewhat. Right. It's also the reason why you see a guy like Tillman Fertitta going in and buying up shares, because there's some question about if Wynn Resorts keeps having to shell out at a burn rate, what they're shelling out in Macau. Um, what happens when they have to go and try to find new credit in this market? It's just not there. Is Tillman Fertitta going to make a play to take over all of Wynn Resorts? I don't know. I have no clarity about that at all. I just know that when a guy like this goes in and takes a big stake in a company like Wynn, it sets a lot of tongues a-wagging. Okay. Mr. Shareholder? Great discussion. You guys really just covered it. From a shareholder point of view, though, I look at this as you've got an enterprise value that is worth the Boston and the Las Vegas properties. Embedded in there is a zero premium call option on Macau. Now, Scott, you're doing the right thing. How long can they subsidize this? So let's just, what I've said right now is we've got a Las Vegas investment, all right? If the call option works out that somehow Macau opens, great. You're asking the question, as you've been asking a lot, what happens if the market tanks, if the economy tanks, and there isn't the, the funds with which to subsidize this? And all I'll say to that is that that has been the rub on this stock, amongst other things, for the better part of a year. I look at the Las Vegas uh, Convention and Visitor, Visitors Authority. They put out monthly results, of course, with a month lag, which is annoying. Las Vegas just continues to shoot the lights out. We've been talking about a recession and high inflation since April. I mean, we've been talking about, like, these numbers should be dropping off. They're just not. And next year they're getting Formula One. The group business calendar is packed. The concert schedule is packed. So there's a lot going on in Las Vegas if you like this, this kind of business. The, the, one, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that Wynn has an investment right now in the United Arab Emirates. This could be game-changing because they're going to have their first integrated resorts in the Middle East, eight hours from any markets, and, and if this gets going, who knows whether you see that become a next Macau. All right. We will. Uh, I'll see you in overtime. Yes. All right. We'll, uh, we'll do this discussion once we have some actual numbers to, to talk about. That's Contessa Brewer, of course. Uh, up next, uh, new from J.P. Morgan about what a hot CPI would mean for stocks. The note I mentioned at the top of the show, we got our hands on it. Don't miss this next. 
We're back. I mentioned at the top of the program, a, a note uh, was making the rounds um, trying to game out CPI and what it means for a reaction in the stock market in either direction, whether it's a hot report, cool report and what the S&P 500 uh, would do. It is from uh, J.P. Morgan. It is from their data assets and alpha group. Uh, here it is. And I'm going to I'm going to quote from it uh, because some of the predictions are like eye-popping to say the least. Uh, Remember, 8.2 was the September CPI. So we get tomorrow, we get the October CPI. They suggest, uh, their first line in their note, um, 8.4 or higher. So a much hotter than expected. That has to be much, much hotter than expected. You could see the S&P 500 go down in in their minds of 45 to 6%. That large of a decline, if it's that large of a miss to the upside uh, for the S&P, uh, for, for CPI, um, which may seem unlikely, but nonetheless, it's what's being talked about. A print between 8.1 and 8.3, so more or less where you were in the print last month. Uh, that would mean the S&P 500, they think, could be down 2 to 3%. Um, big decline, uh, not 5 to 6%. Now... Better than expected prints, 7.9 to 8. So that would be uh, below the September read. You could get a move of 1 to 1.5% higher. If it's even better than that, of 7.7 to 7.9, you could get an S&P higher of 2.5 to 3.5. And if you get a really good CPI report, you could have a monster move uh, in the S&P, they think, of between 5 and 6%. So the more outsized the um, CPI comes in either hotter or cooler, you get a much more outsized but similar move in stocks. Bill Baruch, I'll give you the first shot again. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Glad, glad you made the trip in from Chicago. You want to take a, a stab at this? Absolutely. Thanks, Judge. Um, they're framing this around the Cleveland Fed inflation now cast. They're looking at 809 um, on top of that, I'm looking at the month-over-month number, and it's been heating up. Last September number was, or the September number was uh, four-tenths. They're looking at eight-tenths coming in. So it's heating up, but we're also got to look out to November. November is going to start to cool a little bit, so six-tenths. So they're, they're looking at this at gaming in here. Now, also, i got to look at flows, and you got to see where, where is the risk skewed. So if you look back at September when that August number came out, the market was elevated. The risk were skewed to the downside. Down here, we're flirting with this lower bound now. So if these expectations are already raised and the market comes in a little bit hot, I'm looking for a reaction similar to what we saw in July after the, uh, after the June number or what we saw recently after the, in the October after the September number where we traded lower but we couldn't follow through to the downside and then, and then the risk becomes to the upside. See, Liz, they say what we were discussing at the top, that this is the, the most important factor to game plan out December. And the Fed, a, a hotter number, brings 75 back on the table for December. Uh, a not-so-hot number maybe takes it completely off the table, and you can start thinking about smaller moves going forward to the point where you get no hikes going forward, and you sit and you see what happens. So it's fair to say that this is the most important to look forward into December. Every single report that we get this year has been the most important, and the next one will be the most important again. If, if CPI comes in right on expectations... I don't think it changes much at all. And that's that's probably the bigger risk, that we didn't get any really new information. If it comes in materially below where we would expect it to, that that actually busts my thesis. If it's if I have a bear thesis about needing one more flush in the market, that's a thesis buster for me. And I would say, okay, you know what, we've made really decent progress. I would want to see the components, but that would be a tailwind. I mean, if that happens, we take the electric fence away and we yeah. let Jim slide over. <laughs> We're all going to hug and have a good Joe time. Yeah, a but I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. 
Yeah. What are your expectations, Jim? Because you're the one who seems to have the most, you know, riding on these things because your position yeah. is is, you know, different from most. I mean, listen, I'm being honest with you. I'm flummoxed this whole year, right? I mean, everybody watching knows that because I'm looking at the things that have come down and come down meaningfully. I don't care if it's gasoline. I mean, remember where it was in June. Used cars. I did this earlier. I'm not going to do the whole litany, okay? Prices, not all of them, but most of them are coming down. And the CPI is still printing these numbers that are just eye-popping. I don't care if it's 8.0. That's a terrible number. Mm -hmm. Now, fact is, if you get a 7.9, I think this market is going to rip. Liz, you'll change your tune. You're you're (laughs) nimble. You're smart. Um, But you know what? Who knows? Who knows? The the CPI has been detached from what's happening on the ground. So let's bring in Mike Santoli for his midday word. He's from the Stock Exchange, our senior markets commentator. You want to take a stab at this? I hope you've been uh, hearing this conversation about this note that's being passed around. I, I absolutely been hearing it. Uh, it. It's reasonable. I think maybe some context. If you go down four to six percent, if there's another negative shock with a hot CPI, that just takes you down essentially to the bottom end of this range we've been in for a while. Uh, you get the monster move to the upside. It's not yet at four thousand. I don't want to take the drama out of it, even though I sometimes like to do that. But that to me is what we're talking about. If that's correct, it's so that we revisit the lower end of the range or we make a stab at the higher end. There has not been but one, I believe, downside surprise to CPI this past 12 months. So clearly people are understandably kind of sensitive to the possibility that it's going to be another negative shock in a market that's been trying to shrug off a lot of these blows, right, that we've gotten from the the, uh, the, the tech disappointments on earnings and things like that. So I don't argue with it, uh, but I do think it's very interesting that we're hanging around here 8% above the recent lows uh, as we, you know, granted, have this vigil for tomorrow. The two-year note yield is not really giving back much. So I do think that shows you that we're on alert for the possibility that we don't get immediate relief uh, tomorrow. If we did, it would be a pleasant surprise. You want to take a stab, too, at this crypto fallout and certainly on, on if nothing else, sentiment at the moment, how you're thinking about all of this? It's not great. It's mostly because it's the unknown. We don't know the exposures. On the other hand, if you told me Bitcoin was going to be down 20 percent in two days and today the Nasdaq 100 is down a little more than one percent. To me, that's not necessarily some kind of a massive uh, kind of ripple effect, especially when you consider the Nasdaq 100 has been down one percent in a day like 10 times in the last month. So I don't know if that's necessarily the thing that's going to be the driver uh, unless, you know, we start seeing other victims fall. Okay, good stuff. I'll see you in a few hours. That's Mike Santoli from the Stock Exchange. We have more trades ahead. Of course, we'll do it next. All right, I'll see you in overtime three hours from now. We got Rivian earnings win, of course, as we talked about. Contessa's going to be back with everything you need to know there. Josh Brown is going to reveal his latest move as well. He'll be with me off the top today. Hope you'll join us. Kevin Simpson, Cameron Dawson. See all of you 4 o'clock Eastern in overtime. All right, let's talk about some calls before we get out of here, because I do want to talk about some other stocks. Cisco added to the tactical outperform list at Evercore. It's up 10% in the last month. Farmer Jim. This is a this is a low drama stock. I like it. I like it for that reason. All right. This this basically over many years tracks the S&P 500, gives you a little dividend yield. Enterprise spending is hanging in there on tech. And these are long duration projects that get spent for Cisco. So they're not going to get downturn, you know, in one quarter with something. This is something for the long term. You hold it in your portfolio and you just forget about we it. We talked about Abby a thousand times on this show because so many people own it, um, you, including Bill Baruch. 
uh, downgraded today at SockGen. Target goes to 140 from 155. They're cutting their forecast for earnings as well, uh, double digits. What do you think? Listen, there may not be the greatest fundamental story right now, but there is a tremendous technical setup here, holding some really great trend lines. It's holding out above a breakout. Uh, cash flow, free cash flow, 17.8% through 2022. Joe, you own it too? Dividend growth story, the stock was pulled back. Offense, defense, value, growth, whatever you want from AbbVie, it delivers. And quickly, Jimmy, um, I know you own it too, but I want to spin you forward to these payment stocks today. Affirm, <laughs> upstart, getting smoked. Does it you- change the way that... that- I don't know what you're going to say. You I don't know those. I know you don't. Okay. Can I finish? <laughs> Thanks. Does it change the way investors should think about payment stocks in general? They're generally long duration stocks, generally. Okay. And I think there's easy money to be made in the traditional financials where the earnings are here now and the price to books are very cheap. So it's just, I see the better risk reward in the traditionals. Give me a final trade too, Bristol please. Myers. BMY. All right. Good stuff. You have a final trade? Yep, I'm active. I'm nimble. I'm looking for PayPal after tomorrow. Oh, okay, so you're undeterred. In the, I mean, you don't think this means anything broader picture about any of these stocks? Listen, I, I think PayPal is overperforming relative strength against the Qs right now. I think it's levitating after earnings, and it's going to move higher here if this market turns. Okay. Uh, Liz Young. Uh, ten-year Treasury. I think fear starts to drive those yields down and prices up. All right. Uh, we're going to see how that moves uh, tomorrow, obviously, with CPI. Finally, Joey finishes up here. I'll see Jimmy's Bristol Meyer and raise him a Merck. All right, so we're staying healthcare. That's still a favored sector for many. All right, that does it for us. Thanks for watching. I'll see you in the OT. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.